0: You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. All right, so we have been preaching all summer with a specific theme in mind. Uh, Which is looking at the Old Testament and just recognizing that their lives look a lot like our lives. And the reason their lives look a lot like our lives is because they lived in a very unsettled time. And I quickly realized as we got into this sermon series, I thought it would take six or seven weeks. And then I realized if we wanted to, we could preach this sermon series for five or six years in the Old Testament Because over and over and over again, you see the same thing. You see people having to choose faith over fear and just trusting God in the midst of a broken circumstance. And so as we get towards the end of it, I want to let you know this fall, we're going to be digging into the book of Mark. And we're going to be in the Gospels and the New Testament. And we're going to be there for a while and just looking at Jesus and trusting in Jesus and seeing uh, his promises for us as a church. And his heart for discipleship. And so, before we even get there, as we start walking our way through the end of the Old Testament, we find ourselves today in the last book of the Old Testament, and the book is titled Malachi. And so, Malachi lives around 400 ish years before Christ, he's an Old Testament prophet. Last book written, then there's this silence in Scripture between the time that Malachi finishes the book. It's a very short book of the Bible. And between the time that Jesus comes to earth in a manger and you hear the voice of God crying out literally through a baby. But there's this intertestamental time where there's just this silence, at least as far as Scripture goes. And so the reason that's so important to me is if God's going to wait 400 years to speak to his people... I don't know about you, but I want to know what he says. And he makes these statements that are very direct through his prophet Malachi. Prophets in the Old Testament didn't make a lot of money and didn't gain a lot of popularity, but what they always did is they always told the truth. And it's this back and forth in this short book of the Bible. You could read it in just a few minutes on your own time, and we're actually going to take two weeks to walk through this short book. But it's this back and forth between God and his people And more importantly, it's actually between God and some of his leadership team because he goes after today the priests who were kind of like the pastors of the Old Testament. And he tells the priests, he says, you despise my name. And here's what he's accusing him of in chapter 1, and then we're going to get to chapter 2 where we're going to camp out today. He says, you despise my name because you take the cheap sacrifice in the old testament they were all about sacrifice bringing the sacrifice to the temple and it was supposed to be a pure and spotless animal he says you take the cheap stuff as if I'm not going to know what you're doing because you don't want to really invest in my kingdom work invest in what I'm all about and you're going to try to take these cheap sacrifices and put it at my altar and what he's going to lay out for him by the time he gets to chapter 2 is something very clear that we need to hear this morning he's going to say you are breaking my heart cuz I'm a god that's a father And when I see my children not just disobeying me, but the heart behind their disobedience being it's all about me and not about your glory, then I have a huge problem with that and you are breaking my heart. And it's not necessarily about the gift. Any parents in the second service or is it all college students? Have you ever had your kid make you a gift that has no monetary value, but it's the best thing you've ever gotten? Maybe it's a little cartoon or something like that, and now maybe you will have a kid that's a college student you're going I just wish they would be that thoughtful once again because I used to be so perfect in their eyes and now I'm not quite that perfect it's not about the gift it's not about the spotless lamb this was just a rule to make a point God's saying you put me not second or third you put me last on your priority list and I have a massive problem with that and so then he gets to chapter two where we're going to spend time today and I just think it's ironic or providential. I'm not sure even how I feel about it, but this is where we land today at the end of the Old Testament. God goes after marriage. Any single people in church on this right side today? right? I don't want to call anyone out at all. I don't want to do that. Yeah, and you guys are just stone cold. I'm just kidding, right? He goes after marriage, and he specifically goes after two things that we're going to hone in on today. He says it is not okay what you're doing. And he accuses us of two things because he's God and he knows everything. And so I want you to pay attention to the two things that he brings to light. Number one, and this is for our single crowd that's too embarrassed to raise their hand in church. Maybe you'll raise your hand online because no one can see you. He says, I have a problem with the fact that you're not just dating people that don't love Jesus, you're not just courting people that don't love Jesus. You're, you're marrying people that don't love Jesus. And I'm giving you kind of a New Testament twist because we know that Christ isn't on the scene physically on earth for another 400 years. But that's what he's saying to his church because 2,400 years later, the same ground rules apply. He says, I have a problem with the fact that you take people and you marry them and they don't love God, they don't follow God, they want nothing to do with me, they have their own gods that they worship, and I'm just going to be very blunt with you, as a heavenly father, your life's not going to go well because of it. And so his first accusation against them is that they marry people that are outside of the faith. And then the second thing he does has been going on since the beginning of time, since sent into the world, he goes after these priests, these pastors of the day, who are taking in their trophy marriages and and, and exchanging them for a trophy wife. And they're taking their wives they've been married with a long time and then exchanging them for someone that's younger, someone that doesn't love the Lord, and God just gets after it. He holds no punches in this conversation. So we're going to start in Malachi 2.10. If you write notes, there'll be a few things that I think would be worth your time to write down, especially if you're still young and single. You can write them on your phone and we'll trust that you're not texting. But here's what he says. He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, and check this out, underline it, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And so he chooses to use this harsh, harsh language to get his children's attention right out of the gate he's actually talking to his pastors of the day and he says there is this thing that goes on in marriage and it's not just a contract and I'm going to explain that more later it's not just a set of rules that you follow it's not just based on your preference or convenience or a season of life it's not a contract it's a covenant and it's till death do us part and you're not taking it seriously to the point where you're exchanging your godly wives for people that don't love the Lord. He says, that to me is an abomination, that to me is profanity, and I want to define what a covenant is in very simple terms. A covenant, and it doesn't even have to be about Christianity, it could just be about a covenant in your life. A covenant is a vow of devotion to a specific cause, to a specific person, or in this case, a creator, God himself. And so God lays this foundation of what a covenant is before his people. And I want you to think about it in terms that we can all understand. So a covenant could be, you know, going through citizenship as an American citizen. It can be a a military covenant. It could be marriage. It can be a variety of things. But it's this bottom line of saying, I am vowing a devotion that's not time limited to this cause. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. I have a very good friend that was at the first service. He's a mechanic in town. He literally became one of my best friends because I always have a broken down car. And so uh, I have teenagers too, which makes it even more prevalent, but he's helped me out like a gazillion times. He's sitting in the front row. Friday night, my oldest, who's a freshman now, is playing football uh, through Roncalli because the Christian school and Roncalli co-op. And so we all went to the metropolis of Miller, South Dakota. Anyone here from a small town? You don't—you don't really a South Dakota unless you either are from a small town or have a heart for a small town, and you don't really understand Friday Night Lights until you've seen those five flickering lights in a small town go off during a football game. But my friends sitting in front of me, and we're just chatting it up and talking, and of course, you know. Guys that are in the boomer generation always tell you when they see football how great they were. And so we're talking about its greatness and uh, we're going back and forth. And then someone gets on the speaker and it's not very loud because it's just some speakers. It's not like a big stadium. It says, and now please rise for the national anthem. And so my friend Welton stands up and the entire mood of you know, everything going on in our conversation takes a drastic shift. And I have some friends who are in the congregation that were with me when this happened. And I just kind of took note of what he did because he did what he was supposed to do as a 20-year vet. He goes up, and, it, and so they say, now singing the national anthem. And you guys know how it works in a small town. It's usually two mediocre female singers. One sings alto. And it's just kind of like not the best, but you just love it because it's a small town. But they were on key, but it wasn't like Mariah Carey or anything like that. And so he gets up like Whitney Houston's at halftime, man. He is, bam, he is right there, full effect, staring at the flag, locked in because of this. 20 years since he retired, in for 20 years or maybe 15 years since he retired, he is all about the covenant. It's not just, here are the conditions, here's the paycheck, here's the health insurance, here's where I'm going to go off to foreign lands and serve the country. I might not be enlisted currently, but I made a covenant with my country that I will serve and protect, and that takes place until the day that I die, and he's right here. That's what a covenant looks like. That's what it looks like to take something seriously. And so God steps in, using that type of passion for the term covenant, And he's telling his church, he's saying, don't you remember what happened when you said yes to following my son? I promised in my covenant that I'm going to adopt you, forgive you, never leave you or forsake you. I give you eternal life. I give you life in the here and now. And I'm a promise keeping God. And everything I ever said that I would do, I have done. But I'm looking at you as a church and I'm saying, man, I just have my heart broken because I want you to take this commitment that's a covenant and not a contract, seriously. And every time I've preached on the topic of marriage, and more importantly, it's not really about marriage today, it's more about divorce, I've always used stats to throw at the church because stats are impactful because they're so bad. And I want to take a step away from that as we explain this process, and I just want to share my heart with you as a pastor now working with people that are broken year in and year out over and over and over again. And I know your situation's unique and I don't want to minimize it. But from an outside perspective, when you hear things a hundred times, it's kind of like a broken record that we all need to take notice of. And so God speaks to his church and he says, you profane my covenant. And when I, when I hear of profanity, I think of like that four-letter word that ran wild when I worked in a warehouse for my father in high school. He says, it's not about your words because I know that you're religious and I know that you try to play some religious role, but I know your heart and I'm not as concerned about as your father naughty words, but I have naughty actions that I'm taking note of and I'm seeing that you're going a completely different direction in what I've called you to live. And look at verse 11 because he calls them out very specifically. He says this. He says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And check out verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so he lays out this first issue of the fact that they have married people that don't love the Lord. And where I want to get very, very specific, and in fact we've never really gone here in church. So college students, welcome back. I just want to tell you what it's actually like if you go this direction 15, 20 years later in your life. And so maybe your story is that you've grown up in church, that you've made a decision to follow Christ, and now you're in this position where you have to make this next step to decide who you're going to marry. And I just want to challenge you, be careful where you look like I know that family restaurant where Dallas Goddard was knocked out cold is a great place. I really do. I, I mean that's just a great spot. And I can't get nothing from you guys today. <laughs> but but there are just certain spaces that you you walk into to do this thing right that if you neglect this process or you minimize the weaknesses that this person has, maybe not even on their own character, but just in their faith because they haven't been born again, I promise you, you're going to sow something that you're going to reap and what you're going to reap isn't probably going to manifest until 10 years from now and then you're going to be paying the price and here's what it actually looks like. In fact, we have people that love the Lord that have walked through some dark places in this issue that I I wouldn't even mind just if you're thinking about making this mistake, putting them in your path so that they can talk to you and say, I know you think this is wise, but let me just tell you my story. But here are some of the core things you see when people marry unbelievers. When it happens, resentment sets in. And it's usually not on the wedding day, it's usually after. And so what happens when resentment sets in is priorities don't align, and the byproduct is resentment and distrust. And so you walk through this process, you get married in a church, and, and the person kind of adapts on some level the values that they, say, that they think they want you to hear. And then all of a sudden, because you know in your heart that the transformation hasn't really taken place, all of a sudden, years later, resentment starts to set in. And it goes from this place of jumping through some religious hoops with you to all of a sudden, now their true colors are coming out. And every time you see, here's the resentment. Every time you start to see couples in church because you're still committed to the process that love the Lord, that have their problems, have their differences, but kind of serve the Lord together and you see the covenant take place the way it's supposed to, every time you see those other couples in church, a part of your heart just simply resents the fact that that's not your story. Resentment sets in when all of those things that you're supposed to do, even though you knew their heart wasn't right 10 years ago, all of a sudden now they're making excuses, they're skipping the process, and your resentment is growing because you know in your heart this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Here's the second thing that you always see when a believer marries someone who's not a believer. You see this family problems start to surface. And, and just to be very real, it's not always the case. A lot of times it's the wife. It's the wife who's saying, Man, I thought that if I just said I do in this situation that eventually they figure out because I have so much charm and they love me so much that somehow supernaturally that's going to translate to the love that they should have for God. And even though you look at Scripture and you go, there's no way that can be true, somehow because you want to believe lies, you start believing them. And the family suffers because you have kids. And when they're young, hear me say this, when they're young, they're confused. When they're old, they resent you. And what they end up doing with their life is they say, I want to make this decision on what I believe about faith and the gospel and Jesus But I feel this disconnect because mom says this thing over here. We'll use mom as an example because she's kind of the stereotypical one that tends to get it nationally. She's the one going to church. She's the one serving in the local church. But dad, he kind of has this faith over here, and it's this faith of I'll see you at Christmas and I'll see you at Easter, but don't disrupt my pattern of life because I have my priorities, and about the fifth or sixth down the line is doing what God wants me to do not always true but a lot of times it's true and so the kids get confused and maybe you've seen that take place in your own life and the last thing I want to share with you on this topic is this that intimacy typically lacks and you can take that to mean something physical because it could be but my experience 20 years into the process of being with the same person is that the physical stuff is just a manifestation of the emotional stuff are you awake? And so what happens is now, because the closest people in your life are those people that you can share anything in your heart with, now because you have this spouse who you can talk about football with and work with and, you know, child discipline issues with, you can talk this surface level conversation with, you can't share the intimacy of your heart with them. Now because you have those issues going on, there's kind of this arms distance where the resentment grows and the end result is there's a lack of intimacy and so many times it's incredibly tempting to say, man, I know biblically I'm not supposed to throw in the towel, but everything in my heart wants them to. God knows these things and he loves his children. And he knows the end result of marrying an unbeliever is emptiness, disparity, knots in the stomach. And he's telling his pastors, he's saying, what are you doing? Where in the world did you go so off course when you're supposed to be taking care of the priesthood that you thought in your mind that this was the right decision? And so he's incredibly frustrated with his pastors, his priests. And then he says this in verse 13. He says this. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And so it's this idea that we're going to get into in just a second where it's not one person and one person in marriage. It's three people and God's at the center of everything. He's saying, did that not make their union one? Was I the center of this process when it started? He says, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He's giving them this rally cry where he's critiquing them and then he's encouraging them. press on and here's the last verse and it's translated differently depending on the bible that you have and i want to get to that just a second but hear what he says he says in verse 16 he says for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the lord the god of israel covers his garment with violence says the lord of hosts so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless here are the takeaways that I want us to leave with as a church. And these are just thoughts I have when I look at this text. I say, man, here are the things that are real in real life. Here are the things that I think God wants us to know, and they kind of surround the idea of what God's covering in chapter 2. And the first one is this, just as a pastoral heart for you, because I think if this sermon is not preached from the right heart, it can go in a direction that is incredibly religious and judgmental, and that just wouldn't be the right way to approach this. So the first thing I want you to hear is this, that God hates divorce, but God loves divorced people. Statistically, about half any people coming to a church on any given Sunday have been through a divorce. And so this isn't just a problem that encompasses people outside of these spaces. This is something, as we're listening online and listening in this sanctuary, that affects us in a very personal way In fact, even more specifically, if you are someone who's not married yet, there is a really good statistical chance that you grew up with one parent. And so for you, the whole motive is not to repeat the process. And I just want you to know this because maybe you're a college student coming to church this first Sunday back in, and your parents maybe recently got divorced because the highest rates of divorce are seven years and 20 years. Seven years the kids are young, 20 years the kids are going off to college, and now they're trying to sow their roots yet a second time. And you have all of this resentment and bitterness towards them, and I just want to speak to your situation. Or or maybe you've gone through a divorce, and you know that it wasn't the right thing to do, and you know that it wasn't the way that God called it to be, but you feel this not just, you know, thing where you're asking for forgiveness, but you have this condemnation in your life, and you need to know the gospel that God hates divorce. That's the way this verse translates. It says that in many other translation, God hates divorce, but the gospel is this, God doesn't hate divorced people. Paul was the chief of sinner, murdered innocent people. God loves him. God redeems him. God does a work in his life. God loves taking broken situations and broken people, and he loves seeing his son move in their life in a way through the power of the Holy Spirit where everything changes. And so hear that this morning as we start closing this thing out, that God hates divorce, but God doesn't hate divorced people. And the second thing is just super practical. That big decisions, and maybe you're either thinking about dating someone that's not a believer or you're in the middle of a situation that's very messy in marriage where you're ready to throw in the towel. I just want you to hear this. Big decisions have massive consequences or big decisions have big consequences. And here's the real truth. That if you're thinking about saying, I'm going to let this stuff go over here because it's getting too frustrating and difficult and I'm ready to start over at this stage in my life. Just hear me say this. If you have kids specifically, here are some of the core consequences. Your finances are going to get blown up. Your kids are going to spend half their time with you And half their time with someone that you've grown bitter towards, and even worse yet, statistically, they're probably going to find someone else, and so they're going to spend half their time being raised by a stranger. There's all sorts of things, when you break the covenant, that the Bible says is something that God is breaking the heart of God, and it literally says in this text, it says, you are covering my altar with tears because your big decisions have big consequences. And so he's giving this to his church now thousands of years later as something that's so practical that we can literally insert ourselves in the storyline and not skip a beat, even though culturally everything seems to have changed. So here's the last thing that I want to share with you and I want to drive this home. And if you're married, this is maybe something that you can bite on. If you're not married yet, hopefully you can take some notes. But here is what marriage looks like. And I just want you to write this idea down. This is the big idea this morning. It takes three for the two to become one. And so the Bible says in Genesis, when Adam and Eve, you know, are united before God, that God is right in the middle of that process to the point where he creates Eve for Adam, and Adam says, it is good, and the Bible talks about this in the context of the two becoming one, but hear me say it again, if you are not married yet specifically, hear me say this, because this could save you massive heartache in your future, it takes three for the two to become one, and so when I do weddings at the church, probably six or seven a year on average, there's people from different walks of life, and there's this process that we walk through, but every time they already understand this even if they don't live it out because and that's part of the, the marriage process to decipher the difference. But they'll, they'll come to church and they'll get married in the church and they always have this thing that stands about right here and all the groomsmen have to wake their way at the end of the service behind the bridesmaids so that everyone can see this symbolic process take place. And it can be a candle, it can be a knot, it can be a cross. But it's always in this idea that the three it takes three for two to become one. And so they'll say, they'll take this symbolic candle. You guys tracking with me? Anyone ever been to a wedding? It's a big deal. And so they'll have this moment, and there's usually this song, and and then they pray together, we sign the marriage certificate, or the family will even come up sometimes. And they'll take this candle to say, here's our lives. And we're literally uniting them for the three uh to be in this process, and we're taking these three things, and we're saying it's all one thing because God's at the center of it. Or we're taking this rope, and we're tying the knots this way and that way, all to show everyone who's watching that it takes three for the two to become one. And it's kind of like this idea that without God in the middle of this thing, it doesn't stand a chance. And it's this whole idea of covenant. I want to show you very clearly This is the most practical takeaway that we'll have this morning. We're going to close in prayer in just a little bit. But I want to show you the difference. The Bible talks about covenant, and we live out marriage like a contract. And so here are the core differences, and you can write them down or screenshot or whatever you have to do. A contract marriage, this is actually from the Trinity Church in Arizona, is between two people. In fact, any good contract is usually between two people. And in business, you have to have these types of contracts or you're going to be in massive trouble when someone breaks the rules. A covenant is between three people. A contract says, I'm going to seek my best interest, and it's a business type of setting. Because if I don't seek my best interest, then I'm going to get burned. And a covenant flips everything on its head as it says, I'm first going to, you and I both, are going to surrender to God over us, and I'm going to seek God's will for our best interest because God's in the middle of this thing. In a contract, we negotiate terms. In a covenant, we serve each other. In a contract, here's a good Midwestern passive-aggressive principle. In a contract, I keep a record of my performance. And more importantly, in a contract, I keep a record of your performance. But in a covenant, covenant, I keep no record of wrong. I'm putting Jesus on display. In a contract, I'm going to punish your failure. I'm not going to necessarily punish my failure, but I'll punish your failure. But in a covenant, I'm going to forgive it. And in a contract, the goal is winning. In a contract, the goal, if you sell homes or cars or anything like that, you know this. In a contract, the goal is always to win, to always get the best terms. But in a covenant, the goal is to worship. And lastly, here's the best one. In a contract, it's a professional relationship. But in a covenant, it's personal. And it's not just between the two of you. It's between the three of you. And God is saying, I remember when you said your vows, and I now know that your heart has gone astray. And what I'm asking you to do is not just deal with that person over there that's driving you crazy in this season. I'm asking you to look up and deal with me. And Because I know that when you deal with me, all of a sudden these things on the peripheral are going to get better. I was telling our first service, I used to have this dream home. I thought it was our dream home. We lived there like two years, and it was on the north side of town. For all you north side of town people, you know what I'm talking about. Um, It's just like peaceful, and and at 6 p.m. on any given day, the, the bells at Presentation College would go off. We just loved that house. And then we realized that actually God was calling us to something different and that being house broke was really, really frustrating. And so we ended up moving to a farm, and it was one of the best decisions we've ever made in our 20 years together as a couple. But I remember, I just thought of this thing this morning about that house. I can remember two specific occasions where I would go up to the front door, and because we're disorganized, we don't do some things very well. We don't always lock our doors. And then when we do lock our doors, we always lose our keys. And so I went up to the front porch, and if you go in the front porch, my wife likes to decorate. There was this beautiful little couch, and there was this little sign that said, Welcome home, or something like that. And I remember the feeling of walking through the porch and being like, ah, I'm home, and then going to the front door, and it's just locked. And, And for whatever reason, that stuck out to me as an illustration about how marriage works, because here's what I think we do so many times. We so badly want to find someone to fill a void in our life that we let God in through this process of saying, I do, and we let him into the front porch, which is this stage where everyone can see us. And it looks like we're letting him into our house or metaphorically, it looks like we're letting him into the crevices of our heart to be front and center in all that we do. And so then the process of marriage officially takes place and he's sitting on the porch, but then he goes to open the door of our heart and it's just locked shut and there's no key. In fact, the only person that had the key is him and her, and they chuck that thing in the grass somewhere, and he is completely locked out of the, hu- of the house. He's completely locked out of our hearts and our lives. And we're saying, we might have said that we wanted to be married in front of God and everyone, but really, we just wanted to walk through a process where our friends can see that we made a step in saying that we're committed to each other, but we want really no part of covenant, and it's all about contract, and we can renegotiate the terms at any time. Are you listening to me this morning? And when times are rough, I have every right to bail because it's fundamentally in a contract all about my best terms. And as we close out this morning, I just want you to hear this. Maybe your marriage is so perfect that you can't even relate. I can just tell you, you're probably not going to do well at New Life because there's a lot of people that struggle. All right, But for the rest of us, marriage is not always easy. In fact, every single time, this is what I've done strategically, I have stopped telling my wife who's at the first service, any time I'm gonna talk about marriage, because it's almost like for some reason everything gets sabotaged. Friday night we got into a spat at kind of a long story and I know you wanna play therapist, but I'm gonna pass on the story. Yesterday she calls me at like twelve o'clock. I'm in a levity because I'm really good at that basketball game and God's called me to play it a lot. And I'm with my kids and she says, where are my car keys? You have my car keys last. And I said, I don't have your car keys. And back, I mean, it was just like we were 20 years old again. And if you guys can relate to this as we close this thing, he's been married like 15 years. You think you're over stuff until you're not? That's us. And so we start fighting. I'm like, "What, what are we even fighting about? This is the dumbest conversation. Obviously, you lost your keys and you're blaming it on me. And and so I said, well, where's my wallet? And she said, I don't have your wallet. And it was just like this deal. And and I, I don't want to get too personal, but um, she hung up on me. And that's between her and the Lord. And so I would have called her back, but, you know, the basketball game and everything like that. But I just I was just thinking yesterday, I was like, man, this is something that's kind of few and far between. And we talked like 10 minutes later, and it turns out that I did lose the keys, and they were in my pocket. And uh, somebody hid them there and put them there to set me up. But I I was just, you know, then we talked later, and it honestly, I think the longer you're married, the more you realize, ah, whatever, right? I mean, 10 minutes later, we're over it. But I I was just thinking in my heart, there are so many times if I saw this thing as a contract instead of a covenant, that I could walk away from this and go, my best needs aren't being met. And there's so many times, trust me on this one, where my wife, she's a beautiful woman who has a lot going for her. And she, a lot of times it feels like she kind of has to put up with me a little bit. There are so many times if she wasn't saying, God, you're the first in my life. If it was just a contract where terms were renegotiated every Christmas season to find out if we want to make it to the next one, she would be gone like 15 years ago when I'm playing city league basketball instead of changing diapers on my toddler who's now driving. Those are just the facts. But what makes our marriage so good, even though it can be so tough, is that I know my wife doesn't just put up with me. She loves Jesus so much that she understands it's the three of us together and not the two. And so the word I have for you if you're not married is pursue the covenant. If you are married, pursue the covenant. But Just one more thing. It's just on my mind. I want to share it. And I think it it impacted me, and I want to share it with you. Coach Meyer, who's gone to be with the Lord, he came and spoke here a long time ago when I was younger in ministry. And then he took me to Max and Irma's afterwards with his wife. And it was my first really time I got to sit down with him before. And I think within six months he died. But he said in this gruff voice, and maybe you knew Coach Meyer. He's like the legend of coaching in Aberdeen at Northern. He said, Rodney, some people, some people look for greener grass. That's my impersonation of Coach Meyer. He says, I just, I just choose to water my grass. And I knew what he meant. And I just want to challenge you with that as close, because that's what God's telling his church. Some people look, instead of sticking it out and loving their spouse and being in the covenant, they look for greener pastures and an endorphin release that statistically will never produce. Other people water their grass and it's rooted in the gospel where they're praying together. We're in the word together and they're saying, Christ, we invite you into this process. Marriage is a covenant between God and your spouse and yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. I would just pray that everyone listening online or in this space right now would walk away with this deep sense of knowing that you are for them and that your ways are good and that you demand a covenant and that you're a promise-keeping God. That there would be no condemnation in this space for people that have gone through a failed marriage, but that they would learn from it and that history wouldn't repeat itself and that they would learn the value of saying, God, you have to be central in my life, in my marriage, in all that I say, in all that I do. Jesus, we pray that you would grow us in our faith and grow us in our love for you. And that when the outside world would look in, they would see a church that's been redeemed and purchased by your blood. And they would say, I don't know what they're all about, but something is different. Protect us, help us to lead through everything going on in culture. We pray this in your name and everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.